Some of the brightest people I've met in my life are misguided youths and young adult and deviants who have so much intelligence and acumen and charisma and just ambition. And it's just two degrees of center. And there's so many people that you, they literally don't even understand that with a little focus and just get out of the town that they're in, you literally can change your life. Like I'm still that kid. I remember that stuff. The thing that I try and tell people is that when you've gone through that and you're where I am today, I still believe the line between who I was and who I am is like wet tissue paper. The line between bliss and happiness and being amazing and being in real serious trouble, it's thin. And a lot of us don't appreciate that thinness because we haven't been on the other side. But when you've been on the other side, you know, you have a whole different headspace on how easy it is to cross over, like I said, wet tissue paper, and how important it is to hold that line and pull as many people through that towards the better side that you can. Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 Podcast. Thank you all for continuing to tune in. If you haven't already, please be sure to go check out the show notes. There's a discount code in there for picking up your copy of Audacious or Break Barriers. Go check it out. Really appreciate all of your participation in making the show what it is today. Also, if you haven't, please be sure to drop a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. It means a lot, helps the show grow. Today's guest is Thomas O'Bray. Thomas co-founded Pixel Media, a full-service digital agency in 1994. He served as its CTO, managing partner, and chief strategist for three decades. Individually, he's gained national accolades for his work. He's been published a number of times, awarded for his technology and design work. He's a, been a featured speaker at TEDx on innovation and collaboration. Pixel Media was rebranded as Rafter One in June of 2022 and subsequently purchased. Mr. O'Bray currently spends his time as an advisor, investor, and mentor to people and products within the e-commerce and startup space and, and does work as a leathersmith. Thomas, thank you for joining me today. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you coming on board. Um, and I think you and I know one thing. That bio was simply just to get the show going, but there's a lot more uh, beneath the surface. Uh, and, uh, you know, what I really appreciate about you was you've accomplished so much that could be put down on paper, but you told me time and time again that you were struggling to put that that little bio together. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to. It's the first time I actually rewrote my bio in a few years. Um, I actually keep track of all of them, and the last time I did that was 2020, I think, uh, to update the partner advisory board. Um, 
bio for Commerce Cloud. But and there's been big changes recently that that aren't really public knowledge yet. That will be when this goes up. But uh, so I, I had to I had to kind of tune it up a little bit. But it is it is a challenge putting 30 years of uh, random things in there. So you did good. You you even cut a couple things out. I appreciate that. You did real time editorial. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I really appreciate the fact that you were able to to turn that around and um, to give us a glimpse of who you are professionally. Uh, but one of the things that um, you know particularly stood out to me uh, during our very first interaction was that there's just something different about you. And what it kind of what kind of what it kind of taught me or told me right away was, um, you know, he may have a good profile on on the outside, uh, but it wasn't built traditionally. Like I knew that off the bat. I knew off the bat that, uh, however you got to where you were, you didn't do it the way that people are probably told they're supposed to do it. You did it in a way that's you know really unique to you and i'm i'm glad that you gave me the opportunity to dig into that on a one-on-one -on -one level with you to learn a little bit more about who you are and and how you got to be um in the situation you are today and we're going to build up to uh the news that that you're going to be sharing and um you know I, if you're listening out there you're probably wondering you know what are, what are we talking about but just just bear with us we're going to get there um so let's take a step back here um I know in, in speaking to you and, and learning about your story that it all started with childhood. Um, and your childhood was uh, by no means um, a fairy tale. Uh, you know, there were a lot of elements to it um, that most people uh, couldn't relate to. So let's just kind of start out right there. Let's talk about where you grew up. Let's talk about your living circumstances and we'll build up from there. Yeah, sure. Like, um, I don't know how far you are. I, I have a, I have a pretty twisted story. So I have to be, we have to be careful how dig we deep, how uh, dig we deep and how far back we go. But, uh, I'm a, so a lot of people don't know I've been in this industry for 30 years and traveling the world, but, uh, I'm actually a New Hampshire kid. So I uh, grew up in Dover, New Hampshire and, uh, like uh, most kids of the 70s, um, you know, had a, a challenging life situation. You know, I had a parents that got divorced pretty much within a year of, of me being born and uh, a father that essentially more or less kidnapped me from my mom because she already had a few kids with with a prior uh, husband of hers. And, and uh, you know, he had uh, subsequently sort of shipped me off to a babysitter where I, I, I basically spent five or six years living with a babysitter from like age four to, uh, to nine. So, um, at the end of the day, I'm a Dover kid, um, love Dover. I actually live, um, one town South of where I grew up. Um, I used to live one town North, so I'm literally within five miles of where I was born and raised and, and I love it, but, uh, I, I was definitely a misguided youth and, and, uh, you know, I could probably do an hour long podcast, um, in in seven year chunks of my life that would blow your mind but yeah it's uh it's been it's been interesting i'm not like the others fair fair so let's let's dig into that uh a little bit more with regards to your father essentially in your own words kidnapping you and, and kind of taking you uh taking you away from your mother how old were you when you came to the realization that you 
you didn't you weren't living with your mother essentially i mean i i knew as a little kid i mean you don't you don't know i mean right it's yeah. one of those weird things where it's just it's you and your dad so you know my earliest memory is four years old you know three and a half four years old i remember that you know i remember being with my dad i remember living in the projects you know i remember all the meals i remember he made candles you know i remember he had an amazing reel to reel and album collection um and he cooked, you know, quite frankly, probably one of the best things I got from him is, is his, uh, his appreciation for cooking. I cook every meal in the house to this day, but, um, I knew early on, but you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're a kid. So you just kind of think that's, you know, that's all normal. You know, then you go to a house where your babysitter is just the opposite. She's a single mom with three amazing children and she's reading to him at night. I didn't even, you know, I, I didn't get read to for the first time and I think I was five years old and it was literally my first day there. They were, they were actually getting ready to go to bed and Lynn asked me to just come sit on the couch and she was reading to, to her two youngest kids at the time. So, you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're, when you're that young and, you know, you just kind of go with the flow and, and figure it out. You know, I, I didn't meet my mom. I think I saw her one time when I was like maybe 10, um, but I didn't meet my mom, like actually meet my mom until I was 11. And uh, that's a whole other story we can get into. Um, my father actually put me up for foster care and essentially kicked me out at 11. <laughs> so, and, uh, but we, we can come back to that some other time or, or never. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you don't know what you don't know, bud. I mean, you know, everyone else has got moms and dads and shit like that. But as a kid, you know, you just kind of doing what you do. And my father was a, you know, smoker and a drinker and, you know, um, over enjoyed his time with all the female neighbors and, and things like that. So, but like I said, I spent most of my, you know, four to nine, I, I literally lived with a babysitter pretty much full time. In the beginning, he would like come get me at night and then he'd come get me up every couple of days. And then it ended up, he'd only like come get me on weekends and, and then sometimes he wouldn't come get me on weekends. And, you know, quite frankly, Lynn raised me um, and, you know, Matt and Heather and Chris and, and that squad, which anybody that hears this that knows me knows, knows these people. But uh, yeah, you don't know what you don't know. You know, you, you do the best you can. I was left alone a lot. Um, whenever I was with my dad, I was alone. So um, he'd leave for work early. He, he'd come home late. Right. And, you know, that was at four, that was at five, you know, that was any time I was with him. That was, you know, when he, when I moved back with him when I was nine. Right. So it's weird, you know, you know, people always say, how do you do it? I mean, you just do it. You, you don't have a choice. So you don't know when you're a little kid and you, you, um, live at a campground, like as an adult, you look back and you're like, shit, I lived at a campground. I was basically homeless as a kid. Right. But you know, as a kid, you look back and you're like, I had all day, every day by myself at a campground. And uh, that's pretty cool when you're nine years old, to be honest with you. So um, it's only as you grow up that you look back and you realize that, you know, maybe that wasn't, maybe that wasn't a good spot for you. So, but when you're left alone, you do bad things. So, you know, that's the other big issue. So, and I did a lot of things. You grew up in a time like way before, forget social media, just, you know, like you probably didn't even know what the outside world was like. No. Like, did you, did you know what a potentially better life looked like oh, no. at that point? Fuck no. I had no idea. 
I was just a kid in the prod, you know, again, I'm, I'm a, I, I, I'm a kid of the seventies, right? Like, you know, no seatbelts, right? You stand up in the front seat, um, no helmets. You know, my father had a motorcycle and, um, he would put me on his lap on the motorcycle. He said I would fall asleep before we got off the, out of the street, the neighborhood we were in. So, you know, smoked in the house, smoked in the car, you know, um, no, I don't, I don't think I knew, I don't think anything snapped for me about like that I could get out of this cycle of bad decisions and poor situations until I joined Cabletron in February of 1990. Like that was my, and even then I still was a bit of a hood rat, right? At, at, at 20 years old, um, you know, but uh, it wasn't until I went and worked at a big business and met people and met white collar people, which I'd never met before. Everyone I knew was blue collar you know, making minimum wage type stuff, scraping to get by. I mean, my mom worked in a shoe uh, factory. My stepfather worked in a shoe factory. But honestly, it wasn't until I was 20 that, like, I realized that, like, holy shit, like, there's, like, a whole other world out here. And it was only one town north of where I grew up. So, but I, I'm, I'm jumping, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, no. it was at 20 that I realized it. And then from 20 to 24, when I started Pixel with Eric, actually, Eric, it was Eric's idea to start Pixel. And just brought me along. Um, he was the promise. I was the process. But you know, when I discovered that, like, wow, just be a good kid and take all this energy and do do good things with it. I, I was literally like, I actually no, it was the last week of February of 1990. It was literally 30 years ago this week that I got a job at this place called Cabletron. It was the last week of February of 1990. They were doing inventory. And that's even a funny story. The lady didn't even want to hire me, but I had got, that's another thing. I got laid off from my prior job. And I just saw all these other people like grownups and nice cars and things. And I was like, damn, like how much money you got to make to drive like a Mustang 5.0, right? Like the vanilla ice car, any OGs out there. And that was when I kind of decided to just buckle down a little bit and like pay attention and like, try and meet people and go from being an introvert to an extrovert. And, uh, those four years, I mean, I was on a rocket ship. I mean, I, it was almost like I had blossomed, um, unknowingly, you know, in hindsight, but, um, you know, four years later, I quit that job, um, four and a half years, four, four years, eight months, four years, nine months later, I literally quit that job and started pixel media with Eric. So, um, but there's a lot of like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dust bunnies and, and dirt in the cracks of that story. So, huh. well, let me ask you in your childhood, pre high school, pre high school age, were you self-aware of any potential behavioral issues that you may have had at that point? Yeah, I was, I was a bad boy, but like, I was a bad boy. Like I probably... I did things at an age that would alarm most people. Like, you know, a lot of people got into things like in their late teens and in college, like by the time I got out of high school, I'd already been through all that stuff. I had already done it. You know, I was a thief, you know, I was a liar. Um, you know, I did drugs as a kid, as a young kid. So, you know, as a, as a young teenager, like even middle school, like, you know, I was on a path of destruction. Honestly, if, if Mayhew um, didn't get their hands on me, um, I'm not sure where where I'd be today. Mayhew is a New Hampshire organization that works explicitly with at-risk boys in New Hampshire. 
And at the time they worked with kids that were probably 10 to 13 was the oldest you could be. And I was a 13 year old when I got accepted into the program, which is unheard of, um, unheard of. I was the only 13 year old um, first year boy in the program. And what happened was um, my guidance counselor in junior high wrote a letter to the program and said, we have a kid here that has potential like but he's making bad decisions and he's hanging out with weird people and he's doing horrible things and he's getting in a lot of trouble. And I was a horrible student. And, you know, I really think that you guys ought to take a look at him. Mr. Gray was actually my, my uh, guidance counselor in seventh grade. And uh, yeah, but Joy, I, I, I mean, I think by the time I was 13 years old, I think I'd probably been arrested eight or 10 times. So, um, you know, and so he writes this letter and then I was on probation as well. Right. So I had like a probation officer or whatever you want to call him as a juvenile. I'm getting real with you. Right. My probation officer wrote almost the same exact letter, had no idea my guidance counselor wrote one at the same exact time. And they both ended up on the desk of the same man that was um, kind of like the executive director reporting into the guy that ran this program. And he read both of these letters and he was like, you know, he's like, I got to just call this kid and, and at least talk to him. The dude literally lived three blocks from me. And uh, his name is Al Cantor. And I got into the program and honestly, if it wasn't for Mayhew, cause you go live on this Island for a month. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I probably things wouldn't have turned out well for me. Like I'd never had really a strong male role model. You know, I had no concept of what a mom was. My mom was a woman that had me like, I don't, I mean, a lot of people aren't going to get that, but like, I don't get the mom thing. Cause I never really, I didn't have a mom during those uh, uh, impressionistic years. So, you know, the Island took me, I was a first year boy actually at 13 and, and it literally changed my life. Um, I still made a lot of mistakes and fucked up and was still a dummy for a number of years, um, kind of guy going in and out. But whenever I saw somebody from Mayhew, it was like I saw my grandmother in church. It was like, boom, back straight, like no swearing, like don't put my elbows on the table, like Mayhew changed me. And it was an interruption because what they did was they took me out of this little town I was in where, you know, I was doing very bad things every day. And um they disrupted that. They disrupted this kind of pattern that I had. And when I got back, I was forever changed, but it didn't work right away. I, I, I still had a few years of problems and I continued to make bad decisions and, and get in trouble with the law um, until a very serious incident happened. Um, and, and as an adult and, you know, scared me straight, quite honestly. So we're definitely going to get there, but I want to ask. I know, you keep you can roll back. Everything kind of just. No, no, no. I, I want to ask, you know, looking back on your life now um, and where you are today and, and what you've gone through and uh, the different phases of life, what has been the number one result of looking back and realizing you had no parents? Like we've had people on here with one parent, We've had people here who lived a full life and eventually lost both parents to tragedy. But you never had a mother or a father, really. Yeah, I guess and, you're probably not wrong. And, or a present mother or father. 
right? And what would you say the biggest reflection of that is on on the person that you are? Sure, you can point to some of the mishaps you got into as a child and been like, okay, like as a result of that, I got into some trouble. Uh, But then eventually, and we're going to get there, you got past that. You've turned yourself into, you know, quite a business leader um, who's built a name and a career for himself and has had several people work for him. Um, but where is that element of your life projected the most? Is it projected in the way that you interact with people? Is it projected in your relationships? Is it projected in, you know, the, the way you prioritize things? That's a, that's, a, that's a fucking brilliant question because when you started it, I had a, a, a probably a different answer, right? Because you got to remember that there's two very different sides to me, right? There's the human, right? The non-professional, right? And I'd say the takeaway there is that I saw enough things done wrong to have a good playbook on all the things I wanted to do right as a parent, right? I'll put it that way. I'm a single dad. I got divorced in 2019. I had three kids. My kids were three and four when I got divorced. So essentially, you know, I had them 50% of the time. So looking back on the parental and, and family side of it, it was to not be the father that I had, right? That was number one. But then I found myself being the mom, which is a debatable topic, but like, um, and basically just making sure they never had any of those gaps or any of those worries. Like I kept my kids young, like my kids are 18 and 20 now, but if you met them, they're young, they're still young, they're young kids and they're not exposed. They're not me. They've never done all the things that I did as a kid. Professionally, the imprint that that's left on me is that I have a level of empathy and care and faith in the potential for people that I don't think a lot of the people that I've worked with maybe fully understood because early on in my career, I was I was a shithead. I was not a good boss. I was kind of mean and kind of condescending and I made bad, you know, I I wasn't good. I mean, I learned how to be a leader um, through trial and error. But one of the things I always did was I never wrote somebody off because of what they did or what they said or how they looked or where they came from. You know, I'm a high school dropout, right? Um, I literally, you know, found out I was going to be a sophomore for the third time and was like, eh. I think I'm going to go get a job. I've subsequently got my GED and all that. But in my personal life, um, gave me a pretty good playbook of gaps that I don't want my kids to have. And in, in my professional life, you know, I try and find the diamond in the rough and and I try and I try and convince people that they're a lot smarter and a lot more capable than maybe they think they are. And that if they just thought a little bit more or tried a little more or looked at something a little bit differently, um, they could do amazing things. And, you know, that's probably my favorite part of being a business owner is um, watching these kids come in. Like, dude, I would hire, I would interview you. And if I liked you and you had no idea how to do what we did, I was like, fuck it. I love this dude or this girl. Right. I'm going to bring him in. I'm going to give them a seat. I'm going to give them an opportunity. I'm going to give them as much information as they're willing to absorb, which is irritating at times because I'm pretty intense and I'm pretty precise. But, you know, I just don't I don't shit on anybody because of their backgrounds. Matter of fact, I'm just the opposite. I have a level of empathy where 
like I want to see them do good. You know, I, I want to see them succeed. I don't want to see them go through the things I went through as a kid. And although it's a weird parallel to draw, you know, I had a lot of people for a lot of years, like decades, tell me that, you know, I was a piece of shit and I wasn't going to amount to anything and I wasn't going to go anywhere. And, you know, every time I just started to like crawl out of that hole, somebody would put a heel on my forehead and kick me back down there. And, uh, you know, I, I never want my kids to think that. And I, I never want my peers or my coworkers to feel that way ever. I'm glad that you said that because that was probably the most evident thing about you um, when I had first gotten to know you was I said to myself, A, this is certainly something, and I didn't know everything about you, but one of the things that stood out about you was you believed in second chances. Um, that's for sure. Uh, you you trusted your intuition with regards to um, how you read the room and the situation and the people that were in the room and um you know, you knew where you wanted to invest um, your time, and 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 that was clear. Uh, but uh, more so, you know, it all comes back to what you said around the fact that you saw potential in people that perhaps they didn't see in themselves because of all the times you were told you were going to amount to nothing. And I think that's so incredibly powerful and important and it's something that's just overlooked over and over and over again um in this grand scheme of things um from a business perspective it, it, and so it is, it is. Yeah. it's an interesting issue because you know I, I wrote something the other day on linkedin um that popped pretty fast about like there's a lot of people interviewing right now and there's a lot of fear and worry in the in the business world and there is this like managing by the numbers versus managing through empathy and things like that and um for for those that don't know but Vishoy and I and how we met so Vishoy was um just showed up on a sales call so I run an agency my job is to go in on sales calls and listen to all the information and try and help you guys close deals and I met you for the first time and uh, dude, I liked you instantly. It was so weird. But I don't know if you remember on that first call, like I was trying to educate you like really fast. And then like, you know, let's follow up. Let me know what I can do. I don't mind being your plow horse. Like if you have a weird thing, come to me on it. And, um, you know, I just, you know, my job on the call with you is to make you successful and try and get you a little bit smarter on the things that you might have some blind spots on professionally in the field that both of I were working in. But I don't know, there was something about you that I liked. I also liked your manager at the time, the, the lady from CPQ that came over. Um, but at the end of the day, I, you know, I didn't get a lot of help. So I go out of my way to help and I actually get in trouble a lot for that. A lot of people, I'll, even professionally, I'll get criticized for like, like, why do you care? I'm like, well, somebody's got to care. Like I care because I care. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. So is it any of my business? Probably not. Um, is it going to matter whether or not I have food to eat in the next week? Absolutely not. But, you know, sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's about, you know, I don't know. I always say paying it forward. I go back to that Mayhew story. Like I know I could talk about 10 different times in my life where there was an intervention out of the blue that in hindsight was a magical intervention. And I owe every one of those people involved in those interventions 
good, bad, or indifferent um, to continue that theme and, and to be that person for somebody else that maybe I know well or maybe I don't know at all, right? That's ultimately what it is. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's a, a lot of insight with regards to how your mind is operating. And, and I think that's the perfect segue now to kind of talk back to how you bottomed out essentially. And I'm, I'm going to take a leap here because <laughs> you didn't tell me this was your bottoming out. You may have had several moments of bottoming out here, but you alluded to it earlier. You know, you had one major fuck up when you were, um, in your older teenage years, right? That's when it went down. Yeah, I was, I was, I was 18. So um, funny, not so funny story. I, I've kind of implied it in a couple of LinkedIn posts. So I was a misguided youth. I did a lot of bad things. I won't go into the details because um, I was a juvenile. And uh, but, you know, I was well known by the police force and the detectives in the town I grew up in. And one gentleman in particular um, made it a point to really chased me for a long time. Like, I think I met him first when I was 11, maybe um, 11 and a half, right around that time frame. And then uh, he, I'd always run into him because I always walked everywhere. I didn't have a car or a license and he'd always shit on me. And he'd always tell me, you know, I don't deserve to be on the street. I belong in jail with my friends. And he was just a fuck face. And uh, I love him by the way, looking back on that, because that was, I ate that like coal and, and just lit it up. And he's the gentleman that made the comment that I wrote in one of my LinkedIn posts. So, which is actually this incident. So when I turned 18, he had waited, basically he was waiting for me to be an adult so he could get me on a big boy thing. And I had a roommate that had gotten in some trouble and, uh, uh Dewey or something like that. So he had convinced my roommate to uh, manipulate me and and get me uh, to do something that, you know, in hindsight was so minute that it was stupid. But it, it was not legal and uh, it was a bad move. And uh, he came and basically what he did was he had an undercover cop that kept coming over to the house and, and with my roommate at the time. And the dude's name was Skip. I, he was actually a good dude. I, I remember him to this day. But I, 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 I faltered. I made a mistake and I did a bad thing. And uh, this officer, um, one day when I got out of work, came and arrested me. Um, I think it was the spring of 88. I just turned 18. I was a couple of months into 18. And he was so excited to knock on my door and arrest me. And he arrested me, brought me down, sat me down, brought out this massive like eight inch file of stuff. And said a lot of bad things to me. And, you know, he was the guy that said to me, you know, listen, he's like, I'm going to give you some advice and you might not want to hear it, but, you know, don't blame what was done to you as a kid on what you do to yourself as an adult. Okay. He's like, I know your background. I've known you for years. He's like, nobody cares. You're 18 now. Like nobody cares. So, you know, don't do the things to yourself that were done to you and then blame your past because that leap can't happen in life. And I never forgot that. And uh, push came to shove. I ended up actually going to court and and uh, and getting in, in trouble. And I ended up actually going to big boy jail. And uh, I got I didn't get a. I, I think I got like nine months. And um, it was Friday the 13th that I got sentenced. It was a holiday weekend. 
And uh, I ended up spending um, time in County Farm. I was in high max for like five days straight by myself in a cell with a metal bed um, with nothing, right? A, a notebook and a pencil, right? And um, I ended up getting put in a pod and which is basically how they kind of organize um, inmates and things like that. And I was absolutely fucking petrified. And I prayed that nothing happened to me in there. Cause you don't know, you watch too much TV as a kid, you know, again, I grew up alone. So I watched a lot of TV and I literally said, if, if I get out of here safely and, and intact, um, I'm going to turn my life around and I'm going to make a change. And, and I did. So right, right after I got arrested prior to being convicted and going to jail, um, I actually, uh, lost my job for being in the paper for getting in trouble, got laid off technically, but I actually didn't. I ended up getting this job at Cabletron Systems in Rochester, which is 10 miles north. Now I'm 18, 19. I don't have a car, right? Like I don't have a car. I don't have a license. I don't have anything. So I'm in Rochester working at this place called Cabletron waiting to get sentenced, expecting that I'm going to be fired from my job. And my manager at the time, Bob Sawyer, I had to come clean with him. I worked in the stock room and I had to tell him that like, Hey, like I did a bad thing and you know, I'm not that kid anymore. And you know, yada, yada, all, all the promises. And he actually um, helped me out and he actually let me keep my job and he lobbied for me to get on a work release program. And uh, you know, I got through all of that to make a long story longer and I never looked back. Um, I never did another illegal thing. Um, I, I took all of the intellect that I had honed as a, as a youth, um, doing bad things and started putting them into productive things. You know, I started working out. I started walking everywhere. I started mountain biking. I started to get to know people. Um, and the more I got to know people and the more I started moving around, the more, um, I kind of, that's when my eyes opened up and I was like, holy shit, like there's people here that like, I think at the time I was like, there's people here that make like $600 a week. I'm like, I remember I used to get pieces of paper. I knew a dude that made a thousand bucks a week. So I would get a piece of paper at nighttime and I would be like, I don't even know how, how I would spend a thousand dollars. Like that's so much money. Like how would, and I would literally break down how I spend a thousand dollars a week. Like, what would it like? What kind of apartment could I have? What kind of car could I have? So, um, yeah, I, I went to jail and it um, petrified me. And, you know, it that changed me. But I remember I looked back again. May, I, I, first of all, I was embarrassed because I went through Mayhew and that happened to me and and uh, embarrassed because of my mom, my family. Right. Um and my younger brother and everybody had to know and hear about that stuff. Like you don't think about that stuff. It's, it's not the, what happened to me. That's bad. It's actually the impact that it has on everybody else. Other people. Yeah. That changed me, so, dude, forever. So let me ask you, and if whatever you feel comfortable sharing, is fine. Just, just for context for <laughs> listeners here. I, th I think, I think um, we figured out I'm, I'm not afraid to go pretty deep. So. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you're afraid to go anywhere at this point, but uh, so what exactly were you convicted for? Uh, drugs selling a bag of weed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this was in the a ten dollar. This was eighties, eighties or nineties. Nineteen eighty eight. It was a ten dollar bag of weed. So it wasn't so like if this happened today, you you probably, you probably would have got a slap on them. You probably wouldn't even 
no one would have even said anything if this happened today. Everybody carries four times that much on them today. So, yeah. you know, it's, so, it's a, one of those things, but um, got it. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, no, it, it doesn't matter at all contextually. It's just so that way the, the listeners understand um, the scope of of the crime that got you sentenced. And it was pretty so now, it was pretty small, but uh, it was pretty small. It was pretty small, relatively speaking. But at the time, yeah, it was something that you know was was looked at much differently. Well, yeah, um, I mean, we, and, we, you got to remember, I had a detective who I had escaped repeatedly for a decade. Um, and and uh, nearly a decade and uh he was super excited to like you know he he thought he was finally i was finally gonna get my just due you know for for years i've been escaping um you know all of these issues that i've been caused or involved in and, and he was pretty excited and in hindsight i don't regret any of it like everybody says if you look back which i wouldn't take any of it back because i wouldn't be the person i am today if it wasn't for that if it wasn't for that I wouldn't have got a job at Cabletron. I wouldn't have moved to Rochester, right? I, I wouldn't have learned that a dude got paid to draw on a computer, and you know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have known any of that stuff. I wouldn't have met Marvin and Dwayne Wiggins and Carl Gettleman and Sandy and Bob Sawyer and you know, Scoob and Brownie. I mean, there's literally thousands of people that have changed my life since that incident. So, so it's fair to say, you know. Looking back on it now, several years later, there's a piece of that experience that was a blessing in disguise. I mean, of course, you know, no one wants to go to jail. No one wants to be convicted and, and have anything go on their record. Uh, but the way direction, the direction that your life was going in anyway, didn't seem too great. It, it wasn't. And it took a disruption. And not everybody gets a good disruption. Some people get a bad disruption. And I'll tell you right now, you know, this is going to sound weird, but some of the brightest people I've met in my life are misguided youths and young adults and deviants who have so much intelligence and acumen and charisma and just ambition. And it's just, it's just two degrees of center. And there's so many people that you, they literally, don't even understand that with a little focus and just get out of the town that they're in. Um, you literally can change your life. Like I'm still that kid. I remember that stuff. The thing that I try and tell people is that when you've gone through that and you're where I am today, I still believe the line between who I was and who I am is like wet tissue paper. It, it's, I, I have a uh, respect and an appreciation because I know with the slightest bit of pressure in the wrong way, I, I can be on the other side of that again. And that's something that, that I remember every day and I keep in mind. I was just talking to a young kid that I'm mentoring a couple of weeks ago about that is that the line between bliss and happiness and being amazing and being in tr real serious trouble, it's thin. And a lot of us don't appreciate that thinness because we haven't been on the other side. But when you've been on the other side, you know, you have a whole different headspace on how easy it is to cross over, like I said, wet tissue paper, and how important it is to hold that line and pull as many people through that towards the better side that you can. And that's what I like doing. I like pulling people towards the better side. Don't get me wrong. 
Bashoy, you I'm sure you've heard of my night game and when I'm out at the trade show, I am still an absolute maniac. I'm I'm still the king of clubs and but um but I do in a controlled and respectful manner where where I'm really just trying to give people a chance to fully enjoy themselves. This is going to sound like a weird question and I am probably going to butcher the way that I put it out there, but you know, you're on here. I've had at least one and maybe two other guests that I can think of that have served jail time that have come on the show. I've listened to several other podcasts and met uh, other people who have been convicted of other crimes in the past. Um, and, you know, the theme amongst all these people that I've encountered and that I've listened to um, is one of, uh, you know, a comeback um, that, you know, is much greater than what they went through. But I, I have a question for you as someone who's gone through it, because you pointed this out and I want to clarify, I agree with you 100% around the fact that a lot of times these individuals who are misguided in their childhood and or in their adolescence, um, they pick up a skill set that like truly differentiates them from everybody else around them. I don't care if you went to Harvard. I don't care where you went to school, what degrees you have, or um, you know whatever accolades you've built. There's something incredibly unique and special about individuals who are misguided in their upbringing, who figure out a way to claw back and come back stronger than ever. And where this question is going is, I believe in that so much that I'm willing to give almost all of them second chances. And when I look at someone like you or some of these other individuals that I've had on the show or some of these other people that I'm referencing, you know, that have um, gone through the system and, and had to deal with it is you could probably tell better who's full of shit and who's not when it comes to wanting to better themselves. Uh, better than, you know, someone on the outside. Um, and I think that's one of the things that is really, really hard to, um, to dispel. And that's why a lot of people don't believe in giving those second chances. You know, they'll, they'll generalize. And that's why, like, you know, when, when I was growing up, you know, you, you don't want anything on your record because God forbid if you have anything on your record, you're never going to get a job. Yeah. Or, or, or speak to that a little bit. Like, speak to that ability that you have now that you've been through the system. And obviously, that was a long time ago, and you've built everything that you've built, and you've done everything that you've done. What's that skill set that you have ingrained in you, given what you've gone through, to be able to say, you know, like, this person really is, like, dedicated to riding the ship, whereas I, I think this person's trying to play me. Well, it's a, that's a really great question. I mean, I don't know that I would say anybody, myself included, is good enough to make that assessment off the jump, right? I think that you can have a read on people, but I think that, that that's hard for me to describe. I, so people always ask, like, so how'd you do it? Like, how'd, how'd, how'd you, how, like, who helped you? Like, boy, you, I had somebody say, boy, you sure were lucky. I was like, lucky? <laughs> Fuck you. I wasn't lucky. I worked 100 hour weeks for 35 years. So um, literally 100 hours a week, 35 years is a, is a business owner. But I think you got to give them the opportunity to express through activity and through putting the work in 
that they're actually willing to do the work because it isn't about whether or not you want to change. I think everybody wants to change. Most people want to change, even if it's just a fleeting moment, right? We all have days when we wake up in the morning and we're super excited to do these 10 things before nine o'clock, right? Because I get up at 5.30 every day, right? But if you don't get started on those things, nine o'clock comes real quick. And we all have that story of the morning of a lot of great things in the honeydew list and we don't do any of them because we got the blahs. So I think the embodiment of that is one's ability to actually do the work, like do the work. And, you know, there's never been more opportunity at anybody's fingertips than there are right now. When I was a kid and I wanted to learn something, I didn't have money to buy a computer, learn how to draw. I taught myself how to draw on a computer using Microsoft Paint in 1991. Okay, in 1991 in Microsoft Paint, it was one pixel at a time. Right. Imagine drawing a laptop on a screen as an interview for an engineering lead that's looking for a designer and you got to draw a laptop one pixel at a time. Like, so, you know, I think there's a lot of things. First of all, you, you could pick up on a lot of cues on whether or not somebody is really serious. Right. It's their tone. It's their eye contact. It's their empathy. It's emotion. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I know. You know, people always ask, how do you do what you do? I, I don't know. I do what I do, Bashoy. I just, I just kind of do it, and I'm willing to give everybody a chance, and I'm willing to talk to anybody, and and I'd say if I, if there's one thing that I do, it's um, like I actually care. Like I know it sounds weird, but like I actually care. Like I care, and I probably care too much and get myself in trouble, and you know, overstep my bounds a lot. But you know, I got kids that came in working for us that didn't know a thing that, you know, were full of shit and made up stories. And you could tell, I could tell right away, these guys were full of shit. I could name them, but they know who they are. They're still in the area. They're actually friends of mine, but you got to like sit down and talk to them. And you got to say, listen, this whole like talk track here, like cut the shit. Like, so like you get, you got to stop that. Do you want to do this or do you not want to do this? And I think what a lot of people are missing is somebody that's willing to put their arm around them really or figuratively and kind of have the hard talk about what's actually required to do the things that they strive to do. Because I don't think there's enough people willing to sit down and talk about the things you have to stop doing very directly and the things you need to start doing and understand that neither of those is a switch. Each one of those is you can only stop a couple of things. You can only start a couple of things. You find these little victories and you start peeling the onion on it. But maybe I'm wrong. If you know me, you know that I like to look good and feel good. As an endurance athlete who trains daily, I need my wardrobe to fit the mold. Roan creates performance-driven clothing for your active lifestyle. Each piece is designed for versatility and made with integrity to outfit you for an active life lived on your own terms. The Roan promise is to help you move forever forward. Use code MILE40 for 20% off online and in-store for new customers only. Visit www.rhone.com, that's Rhone spelled R-H-O-N-E, or find your local store and move forever forward starting today. I don't want to spend too much time on this topic, but I do think it's an important topic because I think it, it speaks to human to human interaction, right? There's a certain level of empathy that you can offer someone who's 
going through rough circumstances or who's been through rough circumstances that perhaps someone who has never seen that world can't really ever understand or level with or show the right kind of empathy for. Um, and I think that if someone on the outside gets taken advantage of by someone um, who's had a rough past or a rough up upbringing, it's it's different than when uh, someone who's been through it then gets taken advantage by that same person, right? Like if you met the younger version of you and you decided to take them on, you, you hired them for instance, and then you realize they took advantage of you. I feel like you would handle that differently than if someone else from the outside hired that same person. Uh, because, 100%, you know. 100%. Yeah. I get taken advantage of all the time. So, yeah. um, you know, I have, I, I mean, I, I could tell you an hour's worth of stories there, but, but here, here's the thing that I operate on. It only has to work once out of, out of a hundred tries, right? Like it only has to, I, I only have to, I'm only looking for the one, right? I'm not looking for the five or the 10 or the 20. I'm, I just, I'm looking for the one. And sometimes, you know, Progress is measured by the small steps we take every day to improve ourselves and those around us. And what success looks like to um, one person is not what success looks like to another person. It is not. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is that we dwell on the 90% that doesn't go well instead of rejoicing in the 10% that does. And uh, Christopher Alexander wrote a book um, called The uh, Nature of Order, and he talks about how we all have 90% in common, and we spend 90% of our time arguing about the 10% that makes me, me, and you, you. Like I said, I, I, I'm only looking for that one kid. If I, if I can just help one person a year or one person every couple of years and 99 other people don't meet my expectations or take advantage of me or, you know, call it what you want. I've had a lot of people, you know, do bad things. I've had a lot of people come at me for nefarious reasons. I've had a lot of sales reps that I've partnered with that are my best friend until, you know, they get what they need and then they disappear. I don't get mad about that because I learned something there. I just need that one person, right? You, you, Bashoy, if you want to know, you are, you are my one in a hundred right now on this dialogue, right? If you think about all the reps and all the people and all the ones I know, you are the one that I have chosen to become close to because I like your energy and I like what you're doing. And we have a rapport, even though we're from very different walks of life, but you know, you are one of those one in a hundreds. You know, Matt Teese, if he even listens to this in Dover, New Hampshire, who came into me as a 22 year old kid, full of shit, told so many stories. Everyone for years was like, you got to get rid of him. You got to get rid of him. I'm like, I like him. We're not getting rid of him. He worked with me for 10 years. He's a dad. He's married. He's got two wonderful daughters. He has a house. He's a good kid. He was one of those one in a hundreds. He was, you know, Rich Woodall, another kid that I interviewed, another one in a hundred, you know. Um, I just, you just need that one, you know, you don't need to change the world. So, and I'm always looking for that next one in a hundred, to be honest. I think that's really, really sound 
guidance for anybody listening to this, right? Like I think that a lot of times we don't realize that it it really is just about the one. We think about it more around we don't want to lose it all as opposed to focusing on the fact that, you know, if we find the one, it's going to eliminate the uh, the sting of, of all the other losses, uh, perhaps. And, and so well, if you look at the other way, I mean, let's just get rid of the sting. Let's just not even worry about the sting. Why don't we just think about, God, I changed somebody's life for, for forever. If you think about it that way, like, you know. I know people that never thought they would like own a car or a house, right? That own two cars and have three houses and have five kids and they're married. Um, I, th- I think it's about knowing that the one is good enough because it's still affected somebody. And all you can hope is that one day somebody that you helped, right? Invites you onto their podcast and inspires you through your story of inspiring them, right? That's all, that's, that would be the ultimate payback, would be to be in an audience somewhere and have one, your one make you proud and pay it forward, right? That's it. If that just happens forever and ever in perpetuity. That's what this is all about. I mean, that's that's what this is all about ultimately, and that's what it comes down to, and, and that's the ultimate reward. And so, um, you know, you're, you're, you're spot on with that. I want to just kind of give the audience just a quick little summary of what we've picked on so far so that way we can kind of go into where you are today. So Thomas opened up about his childhood, about the fact that, you know, he never really had a mother. He lived with his father, quote in quotes there, because he was really raised uh, by his his nanny or, or babysitter at the time. And then, you know, adolescence was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of troubles. Uh, ultimately, he was arrested, you said eight, nine times by the time you went to high school. And then uh, ultimately, when you were 18, um, you you got uh, locked up uh, for, for drugs. Big boy uh, trouble. For, for call n- it big boy trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big boy. He, he got into big boy trouble, uh, and, and was sent to jail. Were you, did you serve the whole nine months? I didn't. I actually ended up getting, uh, I was in there for a month by myself and then I ended up getting out on the work release program. And then I think I probably, I don't know. I, I probably did three or four months of the nine in total. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, and, you know, I think that, that I don't think you said it yourself. That's when the wake up started to happen. Um, so let's kind of go from there. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the steps that you took. You you mentioned uh, using art on your computer. And I know you told me a story about that. So let's talk about that story. And then let's build up from there and talk about how you got to Pixel Media. Um, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I was, um, so the, the first thing I did that, that I can't recommend enough is I got out of my hometown, you know, and I didn't have a car. It was only 10 miles away, but it was like Guam to me, you know? So, you know, I think anybody that is struggling, um, with anything at any age is to just get out, get out of town, get out of the, the rot and the routine and the people that you're always with, so I had to get out of town because I got a job at this place called Cabletron and I walked to work. It was about a mile every day, um, literally uphill. Um, and I was working in the stock room and I took time to get to know people and, you know, 
everyone's got to come get stuff. I did what's called kidding. And uh, I talked myself into a job uh, doing um, test engineering, um, unqualified, and got on, got out of the stockroom and got on the other side of the wall where you actually wore nice shirts and had buttons and stuff on them, which I'd, I'd never had in my life. And I was doing test engineering. And part of test engineering is you make copies of like EPROMs, which back in the day is what we used, and then diskettes for software. So I basically made copies of all the new stuff for all the hardware and all the software, and I had to distribute them to all the departments. One of the departments was network management product called Spectrum. And I had heard that there was a dude up there that got paid to draw on a computer. His name's Carl. And I literally spent close to a year getting to know people that knew people that could get me introduced and close to him, like strategically, like I had a mission. I want to get to know this dude. In the meantime, while things are copying, you got nothing to do. And I always sketch. I always flunked art class because I was doing my own drawings. Miss Castellan used to criticize me. She'd be like, if you just do that assignment, you'd get A's. And I'm like, ah, I like stuff better. And, um, I finally, so I was just playing around in Microsoft Paint, just nothing, just tooling around, recreating things that I saw because I'm a very physical person. And uh, I finally got to meet this guy, Carl. And uh, one day he called, I, so I befriend him. We started working out, started knew another buddy of his, Dwayne Wiggins. And we, um, one day I get a call out of the blue while I'm doing release engineering. And Carl literally says, I just interviewed with Austin, which is this guy that ran tech support. He wants to hire me. He goes, but my my job will be empty. It's a few months after I met him. He's like, but there's nobody to do my job. He's like, would you want my job? And I was like, what? He's like, would you want my job? You could be the graphics guy for Spectrum, this network management product. I was like, do I want your job? He didn't know that secretly I had basically had a man crush on him. And like my dream would be to get paid to draw on a computer. So he's like, let me hook you up with Wally. Wally Scott was his manager and Wally will interview you and everything goes right. Cause he had seen some of the stuff I was doodling with. If everything goes right. You know, you, you might be able to take my job. And uh, so I go up to Wally's office and he opens up this, he's like, so yeah, I hear you want the Carl's job. I'm like, yeah. And I'm nervous by the way. Like I'm actually in an office with a leader like who I'm petrified of. Yeah. I remember I'm like a little hood rat, like I'm 142 pounds. I got, you know, long hair, mustache, like full 80s look. Um, you know, I'm in jeans and 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 uh, a, a shitty T-shirt and like the pencil ties. I don't know why I thought the pencil tie was cool. But so Wally says, well, draw me something. I said, well, what do you want? I mean, I could draw you anything we're looking at. So he opens his laptop, which is a Toshiba T5200. Google it. It's like a the size of a Ramoa case. And uh, he goes, well, draw me this. So I'm like, oh, fuck, that's like the most complicated thing you could possibly ask me to do. Because to draw it, you have to be mathematically accurate. Keys, think a keyboard, all that. So I go and a couple of weeks go by and I'm working on this thing and I'm scared. And then one Carl calls me, he's like, hey, like Wally wants to know, like, do you want the job or do you not? I go, yeah. I go, but dude, he gave me a laptop and like I'm new and I've never done anything that complicated. And Wally calls me, he's like, get up here. He goes, put your shit on a disc and come up here. So I'm only half done. So it's the skeleton of the laptop. And then like one third of it is actually done. And it's all black and white, only pixels. And I go up and he's like, well, show me where you are. He's like, I, Carl needs to go do the job. And I need to know if you know what you're doing. So he loads it in and it comes up. And in hindsight, it was a fit of brilliance. 
and he he puts it on this giant monitor and he's like, you drew this? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm wicked sorry it's not done. By the way, I'm super self-defeating. I'm the first guy that will pick out every problem of everything I do, including today. Like I could still, when I'm talking about my work, I usually lead with the things I don't like about what I'm about to show somebody. To this day, I still do that. So Wally looks at it and he's like, he's flabbergasted. And I wish I saved it because in my mind's eye, I still have it. And I got the job. I was, uh, I got hired as a full-time graphic designer in, uh, I think it was 91. Um, I'd worked in the stockroom for about a year and, uh, that was it. I was a designer. I was a paid designer. I think I got a, ra I got a raise. I, I was making seven Oh seven an hour. So I was crushing it. Um, actually could eat meal. I, I could eat a, uh, two meals a day instead of one meal a day, which is a whole other story I haven't told you about. But, um, and that was it. That started my, my design um, career. And the way that I got into multimedia and what I do now is that we had shortly after I started doing design work about a year in, uh, fiber optic is a networking piece of gear came out FDDI and one of the executives came over to me I was the graphic guy that's very but just knew me as the graphic guy everyone knew I worked on the manufacturing floor everyone knew I was like this hood rat that kind of came up in the ranks still absolutely petrified thin as a rail um, and he said hey we're going to go to a trade show but we need something to like generate enough bandwidth to like make this new networking equipment look like it's actually using a lot of bandwidth. FDDI was 100 meg and Ethernet, which was the next fastest thing besides token ring was only 10 meg. And he's like, you know, do you know anything that would um, do this? And I was like, yeah, well, Apple just came out with this thing. It's called QuickTime. It's like a little video. It was 160 by 120. I could buy a bunch of gear and I could make a video and I could you could run it on the network in the trade show booth. And one thing led to another, and uh, I did that. And uh, one thing led to another, and next thing I knew, I was doing modeling and animation. Um, picked it up on my own and modeling all their networking gear and stuff. And I was allowed to start a multimedia group uh, several months after that uh, under marketing. And we were doing like VR theaters and demo diskettes and CDs. And one day, I'm going to the pixel thing. One day this dude, I'm like doing a bunch of modeling and animation. And one day this dude like walks by my queue and I was like, that looks like Eric Dodier from Dover. Now I haven't seen anybody I went to school with in like two and a half years, mind you, three years, which is a lifetime when you're 18 and it's Dode. And, and I finally like stop him one day and I'm like, Hey, like, what are you doing here? He's like, Oh, I just graduated with a business degree from UNH and I'm doing new hire training. I was like, Oh, that's cool. I'm like, what is that? He's like, well, every time we are hiring, you know, 50 salespeople every couple of weeks, he goes, whenever we hire a batch of salespeople, I train them all on the networking gear. I was like, Oh, that that's pretty cool. And he's a good looking charismatic kid. And it was unusual for him to have that gig in the beginning. And a few months into his job, he came to me one day and he's like, Hey, I heard you doing this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of noodling around. He's like, would you be interested in um, doing like an e-learning course for me? Like, I would love to like not carry all this gear around when I have to do new hire training. I was like, yeah, whatever. He's like, well, what can I do? How do we do it? I go, well, just grab some scrap paper and just like draw, like just sketch, like just draw what you're thinking and give it to me. And um, I'll see what I can do. I still have the papers. There's 14 pieces of paper. They're actually, they're, they're in my desk back here. They're literally 30, 31, 32 years old. 
And he did. And I modeled and animated the entire product line in 3D and with all the features and benefits and stuff as a uh, instructor aided e-learning thing and burnt it on a CD. And that's what he did all of his new hire training with. And then one day he pulls me aside. He calls me over to another, the other building and he's like, hey, he's like, is this something you'd want to do for like a job? I was like, no, I get paid to draw on a computer. Hmm. He's like, because yeah. he knew me in Dover. By the way, he knew all these. Yeah, things. he knew where you. He knew where you were coming from. He knew that kid, right? Yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, I would love to do this. And he's like, what do you think about starting a business? And I was like, I'm in. He's like, well, he goes, you know, okay. He goes, let's try and figure out a name, which we did, and we had all these stupid names in the beginning. And I like the idea of Pixel, which was his idea. He had uh, appended a bunch of stuff to it. I put media on it. And then um, we started and he said, well, what are you going to do? Like if I get too much work, because he was a sales guy. He's like, well, I'll sell it if you'll do it. I'm like, all right, I'm in, sold. So we start Pixel Media in theory. And, and he's like, well, what are you, what are you going to do if you can't do all the work? I was like, I'll just do what I did for me. I'll go find another me on the streets. I'll go find some kid that I like who needs a chance and I'll train him. And he was like, you can do that. I'm like, I did it for me. Like, that's true. I said, he goes, all right, I believe you. So we started Pixel Media. We agreed in June, came up with a name in July of 94. We were approved August 10th of 94 with the name. He quit his job in September of 94. I quit my job on October 3rd of 94, which is a funny story because I was actually on probation at work. And, um, and we started Pixel and it was just me and him. And then uh, we hired our first employee was Evan Karatsis and Karatsis. And then um, I literally would just go find people on the street that I liked and, and I would train them. You know, Brandon Basley didn't know what he was doing. Neil Goslin was like, you know, I love him. He, I, he's still a friend today. He was just here at the house a couple of weeks ago, literally from from literally 28 years ago. And I just went out and found these people that I liked and gave them a chance. And, you know, some were smarter than me. Some needed some guidance and help. And, you know, Eric found this kid, John Saladay at UNH and said, I really like this kid. I think we should hire him. You should take him under your wing. And I did. And John was with us forever. And, and that's kind of how it all happened. I literally just we would just find people that had good personalities and just that's invest amazing. in them and believe in them and, and give them some responsibility and go. And uh, that's amazing. Now, now remember, I, I, I had heard a dude. I, it was 91 was the first time I heard a dude drew and got paid on a computer. And literally, you know, third quarter, fourth quarter of 94, I had quit. Right. So in, in less than three years, I had I had done so much work and put so much time in and had confidence in Eric, not me. I was still imposter syndrome to this day. Um, and that was it. And then, you know, people want to know what the key to success is. The key to success is find somebody you trust and put the work in. So put the work in. That's the thing people don't get. Like I worked hundreds. So that was 94. So you were, you were in your 20s, right? I was 24 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So you were 24 at the time. Uh, and, you know, again, like I just want to, I got to give the audience like some sort of perspective around this, right? Because at 24 to put the pieces together after going through what you had gone through. And I don't want to say you had it all figured out at 24, but you took a huge, you took a huge leap at 24. You took a leap that 
most people would be terrified of taking, especially after, you know, calling it what it is, not having a foundation. Like you, you, you didn't have, you were figuring it out every step of the way. And then you took this enormous leap. But I think that, you know, what do you have to lose, right? Because of the fact that you've seen some pretty dark things up until that point in life where what's the worst that could happen, right? This business doesn't work out, completely collapses. Where do you end up? You end up probably still in a better place than where you started in childhood. Yeah, but um, I, it's, it's, you know, I've had a lifetime of just having to figure it out, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, every job I've ever had, I wasn't qualified for, um, you know. But it, it, it's crazy because a lot of times that, that, idea of like what is the worst that could happen in your case the worst that could have happened was probably still slightly better than some of the worst things that you had seen oh it was and, it was or, it was 100 miles beyond uh, the worst yeah, thing that could and, happen was the best thing for me anyway right yeah most people's and, worst and so that, thing is is it's it's not that bad folks i, I can yeah. tell you but it's not <laughs> so and so that's a really unique aspect of this so now 30 years have gone by. Uh, and I know we're not going to be able to cram 30 years of, of what has happened over that. But I know that you've built a really successful business over the last 30 years. We. Oui. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to cut it short on, on what you've accomplished in those 30 years. Uh, but I want to talk about um, the evolution um, since 1994. And I want to talk about who you were then and what you've accomplished since um, and how that has impacted who you are today. And we're going to close this out, you know, by giving the update. So, I know that was a loaded question, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do do your best, you know, to talk about the vision you had then in '94, summarizing where you are today, 30 years later, and the impact that has had on you. Yeah. So the vision in 1994 was we were like doing interactive multimedia, right? Like the web, it, it just got out. I did a website right before I left Cabletron. Um, the domain we registered at Cabletron was like in the 12,000s, just to give you an idea how early it was. I think when we registered Pixel Media as a domain, there was still only, you know, a couple of million. Um, 94, uh, young and dumb and, and full of ambition. I mean, I just was a kid that had a job that got paid to draw and I had done enough projects. I'd done probably a dozen projects, a couple, maybe a couple dozen at Cabletron where I had just enough confidence and naivety to kind of get through things, but very raw, no leadership. Like I was more like a team lead or like a, I was a good designer and a good developer and a good modeler and animator that was like learning how to be a boss and I, boss is a shitty word, learning how to lead and, and be a manager and a good coworker on the fly, like in, in control. And it was pretty tough in the beginning. I, um, if I got a lot, if we got along and we vibed and we had the same work, that work ethic, everything was amazing. Right. But, um, you know, I was very raw and industrial and, um, I swore a lot and I was super aggressive and I was a yeller in the, in the early, early days. I, I, I'm not very proud of the, the young leader that I occasionally was. 
And again, when you're in your mid and late twenties up into, so, you know, into my, my later twenties, you know, you, you get a little arrogant and you get a little air of power and control and you can kind of forget, you know, and there are times in my life when in the early days, in the early five or six or seven years, it, you kind of forgot the privilege that I had, right? You're making good money. You've got 40 or 50 employees. Um, you're doing good things. You're working with brands that everybody's heard of. Um, and you know, you kind of forget where you come from and you forget your roots a little bit and it does happen. And it did happen to me. So I had like a moment when I was 30 where I selectively went back to Mayhew and, um, it's kind of a funny story where I actually got online and I was like, I wonder if they have a website and I wonder if there's a picture of me. And Mayhew was always a grounding point for me in hard times in my life. I would call it a, a super religious person's version of their church. Right. Um, and I got back involved in Mayhew. I went back. I saw a picture of me. I went to the island. I started talking with the kids and I had to kind of reground myself because I was getting a little out of control in my, my late 20s. Um, fast forward to sort of the last decade. Um, you know, we were a digital agency that did a little bit of everything for everybody. Right. So when social came, we were there. When rich HTML and apps came, we were there. When content management came out, we were there. So we kind of grew organically through all of that stuff. I hated the web. Um, I never wanted to do it. We did our first website in October of 95 for a local radio station here, WHEB. But I thought the internet was stupid, uh, to be quite honest. It was like little banners and little pictures. And I was a modeler and an animator and things like that. So um, we ran that agency model for quite a while. And then what we saw was we saw the web kind of start to become commoditized and agencies become commoditized. And Eric, through a lot of trial and error, which he always did, it takes me a lot to be convinced to look in a new direction or try something new. When I'm doing something, I'm dug in to it like a tick. I'm committed to the end. And it took about a year, maybe a year and a half for Eric to get in my ear and for me to want to invest time about getting into e-commerce. So I don't remember if it was 10 or 12 or 14 years ago, uh, Beshoy, but we decided to go as a full service agency into just being a full service agency just for e-commerce. And we picked one platform and got rid of all the other distractions. And that platform was Demandware, actually. And so we went all in on that and did that pretty much since that period. I, th I think it's about, well, no, I got involved in Demandware in 05. So actually, we're coming up on 19 years here. Um, where we eventually went to and, and where I went as a leader is um, Eric had to come talk to me one time um, in my young 30s and explain to me that my management style wasn't really appreciated as much as it maybe once was. And that maybe I was not being um, the leader that he expected of me and that my team deserved, right? Because everybody reported up to me other than the sales team. And um, we agreed at the time that I wasn't worthy of um, running the teams anymore, even though I was a partner. Um, it was best if they all reported to him. So, you know, halfway into our career together, um, Eric actually kind of took everything away from me and focus me on sales. And it was a big wake up call for me, Bashoy, to be honest with you. I've actually never told this story. I think Eric would be shocked that I'm talking about it. But um, 
it was a big wake up call for me because what had happened is I was running so hard and so long and so focused that I didn't care about anybody's feelings. I didn't care about work-life balance. I didn't care about families. I was go, go, go. I could pick a problem out from a quarter mile away. Um, and I was mean, you know, I was mean and I was getting sour and, um, he took it away from me in the most respectful, caring, endearing way possible. And he ran the floor um, for quite a few years for me while I focused on being a sales guy. And that's really when I kind of started developing as a, as a sale, the salesperson that you, you know me as recently. It was due to that issue. And Eric ran that group for probably about eight years. And, uh, and I was out, you know, a plow horse on the sales side. And then we started to have challenges, as I said, when websites started to be commoditized and we decided to, you know, pick a vertical and a product and go all in on it. And that was demandware and that was e-commerce. And I actually took all of the delivery people back over again. And Eric had the sales folks again in marketing and HR and finance and 27 other things that I had no idea how to do. And I had a new appreciation for like what it meant to be a leader. I actually got to watch Eric lead, like really be a leader, like empower his teams and give them the authority, but and give them enough rope to, I'm not going to say hang themselves, but certainly take one of the two feet out from under them from time to time. And I really appreciated his style and his way of doing things. He didn't know how to do all the work like I did. So he didn't see a lot of the things that would irritate me prior. But I learned how to be a leader by watching Eric lead. And when I took the floor back over um, about 10 or 12, 13 years ago, um, I, I was a different person. I was I was um, I was just kinder and gentler and more patient and and, uh, you know, didn't have the tooth to me. And I learned to let people fail and then correct after versus always pointing out failures, thinking I was doing a good thing by telling you this was wrong versus letting people discover it. And I wouldn't be the leader I am today. Um, I wouldn't be the salesperson I am today. Um, you know, I wouldn't be the manager that I, I developed into over the last 15 years if, if I didn't have a chance to watch him every day as my partner. And we were 50-50 partners for 27 of the last 30 years. So, um, and... Then we got to this point where we decided like, hey, what are we going to do here? Like, are we going to run this forever? We're in our 50s. Like, you know, do, do we want to sell it? Do we want to get involved with other people? And, you know, to make a long story short, we took some private equity in, um, took some chips off the table. Then we went out and we actually purchased a couple of other partners that were parallel versions of us. So the Docmation guys came on board. They're amazing at what they do. They were the B2B version of us on Salesforce. And then we picked up the Gears team with Harry Radenberg and his stunning team. They do uh, CRM and service and, and Mule and, and a hundred other things. And uh, next thing you know, there's, you know, we're, 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 we go from a hundred person pixel with just Eric and I to, you know, 500 people and, and seven partners. And uh, it's been amazing. You know, I, I loved it. I loved, I loved every moment of it. And then as I read in my bio, IPG came along and, and purchased the entire entity in um, October of 22, I believe. I think it was about a year and a half ago. 
That's absolutely wild. And, and, and thank you for Very giving us that. But yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for giving it to us though. And so, you know, again, like, I can't even imagine, you know, starting out the way that you did, turning it into what you turned into and, and having it kind of, um, you know, just, it just packaged up now, um, is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I had a lot of um, help. And so that kind of, you know, that brings us to where we are today. And so, uh, you know, this episode is coming out uh, one day after you make your announcement, yeah, if yeah. everything goes uh, according to plan. And so why don't you share with us uh, where you're where you are now? Yeah, so I, I want to be clear that like my success is is highly dependent on on Eric and and the leadership team that we have now, and and quite frankly, every staff member that's every ever worked for us in the last thirty years. I mean, I I remember every one of them. I still stay in touch with them, but it's not a me thing; it's a them thing. I think that they taught me more than I taught them. I think I'm just a conduit for them to express what they want to do. But Eric is is probably the guy that that you know, made me the, a better, a truly better person, um, despite all the warnings 30 years ago by all of our friends in high school. Um, but yeah, so I, I've recently, you know, this is my 30th year. And, um, I, as I said earlier, I, you know, I've been working a hundred hour weeks for a very, very long time. So I've, I've decided that to leave. So, um, I'm formally at the end of this month, no longer with, um, Rafter one or formerly known as pixel media, and uh, for no fault or reason, anything other than it's my 30th year. And, um, you know, I've never not had a job since I was 14 years old voluntarily. So I'm on a sabbatical right now. Um, my goal is to take a few months off. Um, you know, we'll see how well that goes. Uh, the over under is not in my favor on the betting line from all my friends. But, you know, it's time to focus on me and. Uh, I love the business. I love the people. I still stay in touch. I, I talk with Eric and meet with him every week. But, you know, I've, I've left Grafter and, you know, my future is uh, more on the advisory and investment and mentorship side. You know, I want to go find um, and there's a few of us that are talking about it. You know, I want to go find I want to go find me. I want to go find another kid like me, preferably another couple dozen kids like me. And uh, not exactly like me, but, um, you know, I want to pay it forward and uh, I want to help product companies build better products and have better product messaging. Right now, the e-commerce market is a literal shit show of terminology and and uh, smoke and mirrors. And, and I think it's bullshit. Um, uh, I'm going to invest where I think it makes sense. Um, and uh, I want to get on the mentorship side of things. And again, focus on me. I got kids that are going to be going to college this fall. This is my last year with my boys. My wife is working as a nurse full time. This is like the first time in my life I've actually been able to take some time. But my true passion is, you know, helping. So I'm going to put all my energy and my time into helping others and, and see where we go from there. And, uh, you know. Thank you. Thank you for giving us that update. And, you know, I, I just think it, it speaks so much to everything that you've gone through. And despite the fact that you've been figuring it out 
all along the way. And and you mentioned your roots earlier, right? And and it kind of, that the fact that you mentioned your roots kind of stuck to me because I was thinking to myself, well, what roots is he talking about? Like, what exactly was he referring to when he said his roots? But somewhere along the way, you realize that people either instilled value in you, they they showed you a little bit of what it is that you can do, and they showed you the the power in projecting that on others. And they showed you the importance of, of paying it forward. And I think a lot of people could have gone through life, especially after navigating what you've built over the last 30 years, continued to allow the cash to come in, continue to build wealth, and eventually just taking that to their grave without taking the period that you're now taking and by all means, I know you're figuring this out. And to the audience out there, you know, he said it very eloquently around what it is that he's going to do right now. But if we were to have another podcast episode, we could probably spend an hour talking about what it is that he's actually doing right now to figure out, you know, the next couple stages of of, of his life. Uh, but you know, the one thing that's been evident since you and I started talking, and that I appreciate you sharing, is that focus on paying it forward. And I think there's no message more powerful than a person who came into this world with the odds completely stacked up against them, who was um, essentially told that could he could amount to nothing uh, to the point where someone, you know, essentially was waiting for the opportunity to put you in a jail cell. And, and, and now all you can think about is how you can give back. And so I think it's the perfect way to round this out. And I just want to say thank you for that. And uh, thank you for sharing that. And most definitely going to have to figure out a way to get you back on here. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of stories to share. I appreciate, um, I appreciate you asking me, you know, I was honored for those listening. Like it took me a couple of months. I, I was petrified to do this with you. And you know, these are stories I don't tell much. So there's a big group of people that may hear this, that know me, that don't know this. They've heard bits and pieces, but you know, I, I think that it's important for people to understand that the road isn't always straight or paved. Um, and it always, it, it isn't ever um, what you think it's going to be, but you know, you just gotta, you gotta put the work in at the end of the day. And like I said, you know, thank God, Eric came to me. Um, I'm a better human because of him. And if I had one suggestion for anybody out there, that's like struggling with like mentorship or, you know, somebody that you can kind of look up to, you find somebody like that's one of my things. I am magnetized towards people that I admire and I respect and that I wish I was more like. That's why I'm close to Billy. That's why I'm close to Rich. That's why Eric is my lifelong friend. That's why I have Shannon, my wife, the queen. She's a, a unicorn, right? Like find people and without excuse or shame, go after them even if it's just to have a coffee and just talk like don't be afraid to go step outside your network or outside your group and say hey this is who i am and you know can we just like grab a coffee and shoot the shit like there's i appreciate this or that the other thing it's literally my go-to move and uh i'm telling you right now if you do that like right now it'll change your life Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, 
subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.